0: In this episode of the World Cup Project, I speak with PSG Talk founder Ed about the negatives of the World Cup. It's a discussion that needs to be had covering the FIFA scandals of the last 10 years, including bribery, the human rights violations of the host countries, security, and other concerns headed into Russia. We also introduce new concepts that could help improve the World Cup, including a supplemental tournament for the best of the non-qualifying teams, and rule changes to improve the games. I'm your host, Mark Damon. Join me as we discuss the darker side of the world's greatest tournament. It's the negatives of the World Cup, here on the World Cup Project. PSG Talk founder Ed, welcome to the World Cup Project. Hey, thanks for
1: having me. I've been looking forward
0: to this, Mark. Yes, and I... Really happy to have you on for two reasons. One, you are a very hard man to get in touch with. And secondly, I think like, I think we have a real topic that we can kind of sink our teeth into and develop some really good ideas and have some really good conversation about. So before we get to that, I just want to kind of ask you about your um, relationship to the World Cup. Now, We've talked about um, how you started PSG Talk and all that stuff, so if you want to know sort of how PSG Talk uh, was founded and the early stages and beginnings of it, we do have an episode from December in the archives that covers all of that. But for yeah, now link
1: to that in the article.
0: Yes, and we'll link to that as well. But just talk about sort of your memories of the World Cup and if those memories were the first memories of football that you had in general.
1: Yeah, so I started PSG Talk in 2015, but I've been watching soccer, I would say, probably since the 1994 World Cup, and that's when uh, the United States hosted it, and that was my first introduction, and I was fairly young at that point, so I don't remember a whole lot of uh, you know, the games and what happened, but I do remember I would watch a match and then go out in the backyard and I'd be practicing my dribbling and, and free kicks against the house that my parents would yell at me for. I remember doing that. And, uh, you know, the 94 tournament basically ended my interest in baseball, and I probably didn't even pick up a glove after that. And um, so, you know, like so many that have been on the World Cup project, which I'm just going to say again, is a fantastic idea. And if you haven't listened to all the episodes yet, definitely put that on your to-do list. But, um, you know, the World Cup was my intro to soccer. And I think like you, Mark, I never really knew about club teams until much later Which I know for the rest of the world sounds ridiculous now, but like, you know, throughout the 90s and even into like the early 2000s, club football was extremely difficult to follow in the States. Um, Even if you found a channel that would show the games, it was expensive as hell, and they didn't even show all the games. Like NBC Now, they show all the Premier League games that did not exist, you know, back in the day when we were watching. So the World Cup in in national teams was really how most Americans digested, you know, football. And so that was sort of my intro, the 94 uh, World Cup.
0: And talk a little bit about sort of the memories you have Mm -hmm. in subsequent World Cups and just sort of your favorite sort of yeah. your sort of favorite memories, the things that you remember that you just immediately connect to the World Cup?
1: Great question. Yeah, so I mentioned the 94 uh, World Cup. I don't remember a whole lot from that and World Cups after that, they're sort of flashes. So I remember Zidane's headbutt in 2006 and I remember staying up or waking up extremely early to watch you know, games over in Japan in 2002. A lot of it sort of scrambled together for me. Nothing really stands out, but Um, what I do remember is playing the World Cup video games, so, like, FIFA, and and playing with my favorite national teams, and I would say, like, for Americans, the FIFA video games and the World Cup video games, that was, like, a big influencer out of pretty much anything else, even the tournament, but when it comes to the World Cup, um, I remember vividly, and it still, actually, it gives me goosebumps to this day, is from the 2010 World Cup in South Africa, um... You know, United States men's national team, that's my, I support them. I'm, I'm American, that's where I was born, so that's that's my favorite. You know, France is my second team. Um, but Landon Donovan's goal in 2010 against Algeria at stoppage time was as good as it gets. Um, it didn't win us the trophy or anything like that, but it was the last match of the group stage, and USA needed that win to advance to the knockout stage. And I remember watching it live. Um, I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time, and uh, I believe the match was like during midweek, maybe a Wednesday or something, and so I was at work, and I was watching with a bunch of co-workers, and as the game went on and on and on, I was getting more and more nervous, and I'm the type of person that just can't even watch it when it like just gets, and I'm at work, and I don't want to like, lose it with my co-workers around, so I, I went back to my desk expecting the 0-0 result, and USA wouldn't advance, and then all of a sudden, uh, my friend came uh, at work, and he ran down to my cubicle and said that we had won, and I didn't believe him. And so I went and looked, and I saw that Lana Donovan had uh, had won the game for USA, and it was sort of a subdued celebration. People were all at work. We kind of high five and stuff, but I was I was kind of freaking out in my mind. And it wasn't until, like, a few days later, and Mark, I don't know if you've seen the video where everyone's, like, reacting. Yeah, and, like, I did. Montage, And it's set to the music from Rudy, and it was at that point that you realized, like, holy shit, like, we live in a soccer-crazy country. Like, I had never seen anything like that in this country, not when, like, the Cowboys won the Super Bowl, which is, like, America's team for, you know, na- National Football League. Like, you never have seen an entire country erupt like that when it comes to a soccer game in America. And so, like, just talking about it right now, I get goosebumps. And it's just incredible. And then in 2014 in Brazil... You know, John Brooks, he scored late against Ghana, which always, that country always gives USA trouble in the World Cup. And so he scored late, and there was another, like, big montage video. And so it's these, like, late goals that are in the Klintzman era that really stick out in my mind and probably elevated America on the national international stage as being a soccer crazed country. Like, the scenes that you saw when these goals went in, that's something you would see in Germany or Italy or Spain. And now we were doing that. And so those are the moments that really stick out to
0: me. What is, I think, significant about this moment, and I, I'm really glad you brought it up, yeah. which is I think it was one of the perfect storms that if it didn't happen, I don't think we're here today where we are sort of when it comes to the United States and its relationship with soccer. Right. I think it's the turning point. It's the moment where... For the first time ESPN really sort of went all in with the World Cup. They'd had they'd sort of, you know, had games on here and there and they didn't they didn't embrace it as much in like 2006 or 2002. In 2010, they really like went all in with covering the World Cup. And you go to that moment and you just remember, you know, this sort of little-known British announcer who you know who again was an a average announcer in britain comes over starts calling the us men's game that that man's name obviously is ian dark yes and just his sort of his call on the donovan goal and then his call on the john brooks goal and if you can put it into the uh into the copy that we do for this i'd kind of want to hear those again so if you have those ian dark calls yeah. On YouTube somewhere. I'd love to I'd love to have them on the copy because I, I just feel like the combination of the U.S. and ESPN going all in with the World Cup and covering it, the live coverage, you know, at the times where they were during the day when a lot of people were even at work watching it or at home or at the bar. And then you have Ian Dark, that sort of um, the secret ingredient, I'd call him to that whole thing sort of working the way it did. It's the turning point for me in the history of U.S. soccer, and soccer in this country in general, and that's where you sort of saw FIFA take off, the FIFA video game you talked about take off, and while we're on the topic of FIFA, we're going to get into the main topic of this show, which is as much joy and as much happiness and glee that we as fans of the sport get every four years when this World Cup happens... There's always the other side of the coin. And when it comes to the FIFA World Cup, we can either talk about the last two words in that, or we can talk about the first word.
1: So
0: when we think World Cup, we think happiness, we think joy, we think competition, we think nervous energy and excitement and just pure elation and the great human drama. But then when you say FIFA, that sort of has its different connotation to it. Yes. As opposed to saying, oh, we're going to watch the world. Nobody really says, and I don't know, you can maybe correct me on this, but I've never heard anyone say, hey, we're going to watch the FIFA World Cup.
1: Nobody says that.
0: You know, people just say, we're going to watch the World Cup. Yeah. And they leave FIFA out of it. And I think whether consciously or subconsciously, FIFA sort of has that negative connotation to it that has not really affected the revenue of the World Cup or the excitement or anything, but it's definitely something we should talk about if we're doing a World Cup podcast. So let's sort of get into the idea of FIFA as a concept. So you pull up the FIFA has been around for as long as the World Cup has been around. They're the ones that originated the thing. They're the ones that created it. And there's that horrible, horrible propaganda movie that they put out, like, three, four years ago, if you know what I'm talking about, where they um, yeah. they touted how great they were and how great the founding of the World Cup was. It was like some sort of weird, like, Origins of Mormonism video. It, it, just, it was, it, like, very, very inaccurate, very much filled with propaganda, and it was put out at a time where um, FIFA was getting a lot of bad press. So, let's start out with just talking about FIFA as an idea. In theory, in theory, is this organization, what should this, in theory, what should the job of this organization be?
1: In theory, FIFA is... Well, they actually are the governing body of world football. And I think that's exactly what they should be. I think that there needs to be kind of like Major League Baseball. They have a commissioner and someone who sets the rules and and the NFL. I think that you do need a governing body for international football. The problem is is that the members of FIFA, all the way up to the president, which during all the craziness was Seth Blatter, I think the issue is that these people are very easily bribed. And, you know, corruption and FIFA at this point just go together and pretty much everything they touch turns to shit, basically. I mean, we love the World Cup and it's fine, but you kind of, you know, it feels a little bit dirty because you know what's going on behind the scenes when you try to block it all out. But in theory, I think FIFA is a good idea. It's just that the people who run it are very easily corrupted. It's no different than politics. It you need a government, you need someone to run a country. But the problem is you know, lobbyists and, and people like that, they line the pockets of the politicians. It's no different than with FIFA. I don't know exactly how you prevent that because people are human and people like money. So I don't know how you stop it. But in theory, I think you do need someone to run international football.
0: And in the um, they began running international football actually way farther back than 1930. They began running it in the, and um, I believe the ni- the early 20th century, Eventually, they began to coordinate the Olympic, um, the Olympic football tournament. They did that in, uh, 1924. Okay. And in 1930, they hosted, obviously, they, they ran the first World Cup, which was in Uruguay for some reason. Um, and, I think over the years, and I agree with what you're saying, I think what has happened is it's gotten so big and the sport has gotten so big. The same way in America, the NCAA sort of went from this um, governing body of amateur athletes to this billion, billion, billion dollar business with TV rights and revenue streams and merchandising. And the original concept for the NCAA suddenly now is completely outdated. So instead of sort of running these, um, you know, basically scheduling and organizing these intercollegiate games between amateur athletes, you're dealing with, you're becoming a business. Yeah. A multi-billion dollar business. And FIFA is in that same way where, It's become this multi-billion dollar corporation with levels and merchandising and rights and countries are bidding for the World Cup. And we talk about the more controversial aspects of FIFA and I think the main controversy for this organization has been the location of the World Cup, and who gets the right to host
1: it. And, and I think I'll say, if I can, you know, if you look, you know, 2014 was Brazil, You know, South Africa was sort of borderline. I get you know they probably didn't have the infrastructure, but they wanted it to be on an African on an African nation. And South Africa is the most equipped. But then you have Germany and Japan and France and USA and Italy. All of these countries are big countries with the infrastructure and the stadiums. I think it really wasn't until they awarded the World Cup to Russia and Qatar that people sort of called called them out, and they looked under the hood to see what was going on. And that's when, you know, when the USA, when they lost to Qatar, you know, we looked and we started slapping the cuffs on people and seizing property and, and assets. And so I think FIFA was fine until they got a little bit too big for their britches. They thought, maybe we could give the World Cup to Qatar, and they thought nothing would happen, and they were sorely mistaken.
0: Well, what also happened was, and this has always been a FIFA trademark, which is, they want to expand the game into different parts of the world. Because if you have more countries and more areas and more continents that are interested in the game, that have a financial stake in the game, there's more revenue to be had for FIFA as a whole. So, let's specific, specifically talking about 20, 2026. The reason that Morocco has suddenly sort of become a legitimate threat to the United States, Canada, Mexico bid, is because with the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, the revenue is not coming from the building of the stadiums or sort of... Like, FIFA can't say that they grew the game by putting it in the United States. Like, the United States has all the infrastructure. There's no real preparation that has to be done There's no real reliance on FIFA in any way. And it's easier for FIFA, in that case, to sort of put a country essentially into debt to have this tournament. And we talk about the different uh, names and faces of the corruption. You talk about Chuck Blazer, who actually died a little less than a year ago. He was the one that got arrested for Trying to influence the bids in 1998 and 2010,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and he was sort of the one that the American government leaned on to kind of expose the whole thing. And eventually, you got Seth Blatter, who was taken down with that. He was the FIFA president during the time. Um, Michel, I believe Michel Platini too. He was, uh, he was somehow a part of that. But um,
1: he was in charge of UEFA, right?
0: I think I think he got caught up in that somehow I don't remember yeah. how but I think he got caught up in that but maybe something separate but you get the idea there yeah. was just this sour taste and I really believe it it exploded what not even for the Russia one but more specifically for Qatar yeah and what happened and how did a country like Qatar who quite frankly should not be hosting a World Cup? Yes, I know we're PSG talk, but if we're going to be fair and we're going to be honest, Qatar does not have the infra- did not have the infrastructure to host this World Cup. They had no infrastructure to do it. So essentially they got this thing and had 12 years to build up infrastructure that didn't exist. Sort of talk about obviously why this choice was so politically motivated. And sort of why that was the turning point.
1: Absolutely. So Qatar was up against the United States, and if you look at the two, one has infrastructure, one has all the stadiums, you know, the subways, the buses, the airports for people around the world to fly in, and the other one had next to no stadiums, did not have the infrastructure, and not to mention has a climate that is not conducive for a World Cup tournament. Like, there are legit fears that those players could die of heat exhaustion playing at this World Cup, which is why it was later moved to the winter. But, you know, Qatar, I'm sorry, you know, I love your money at PSG and I appreciate you signing Neymar, but they have no business hosting a World Cup. Um, I believe Seth Blatter, the former president of FIFA, you know, he, he, he remarked afterwards that it was a mistake to even give the, uh, the World Cup to them uh, due to the climate. And I think when they beat the United States, that's when, as I mentioned before, that's when people started looking into how did this happen, who got paid off for what, because when you look at the two on paper, one is obvious and one is not, it shouldn't even have been an option to host the World Cup. And so when they gave it to to Qatar, I think you're right, that's when the shit hit the fan and people started figuring out what was going on and they started putting pressure on people like Chuck Blazer to just reveal the entire thing. And that's when you had all of the, I think it was in 2015, you had the investigation and all that. So, Qatar, you know, I love you at PSG, but I'm sorry, you know, you shouldn't be hosting a World Cup.
0: Because, quite frankly, um, the only way Qatar would ever get a World Cup is if they paid for it. Because yeah. if you look in the Middle East, there are plenty of countries in that area that could have put on a successful World Cup, or at least done at least a better job. And even in, that, uh, in, even in that peninsula, like, Saudi Arabia is way more sort of stable enough to do that, although Saudi Arabia has its own problems, obviously, has its major problems.
1: And, and not to mention the political, like, that whole area, you know, not to get too political, but people coming from the United States, when they go there, they may be a little bit shocked at some of the laws, yeah. you know, some of the lifestyles of people in America when they go yeah. there. So I think that, you know, I'm all about expanding the game, but... Let's award countries that are doing the right thing, who have reasonable temperatures, and who have the infrastructure. We shouldn't be looking at countries that don't check any of those boxes. Even if you have to give it to Germany two times in a certain amount of years, you know, do it. It's going to be a better tournament. I understand people might get upset. Why isn't it in Indonesia? Why isn't it in another African country? But, you know, it's, it's just the way it is, I think. It's just the way it has to be. It,
0: it does. Because if you... If you want this thing to be legitimately if you want the the host countries to basically be left better than when they, you know, you want to leave the you want to leave the country you visit better than you found it. Right. And FIFA does not do that. And just to go back to Qatar quickly, I think one of the reasons that they were able to do this was because I think a lot of them saw Qatar as a Re, as a, let's say, quote unquote, reasonable Middle Eastern country where they didn't have so many of the sort of draconian laws and so many of that stuff. So they could sort of maybe with a straight face go, hey, this is a progressive Muslim nation. We can, we can get away with hosting the World Cup here. But, like with Brazil in 2014, sort of with like with South Africa in 2010, you have these countries that have to build these ginormous buildings. Okay. It's it's a it's an infrastructure plan. It's a billion dollar infrastructure plan where you have to loan. You have to take out as a country. You have to take out loans. You have to either do bonds or take out loans. You're you're building these things with labor that, and we'll get to this, may or may not necessarily be um, paid. Or dealt with humanely, and you saw how Russia, I, I think, committed multiple human rights violations yeah. in the 2014 Sochi Olympics in the building of those stadiums. I think there was a great um, piece by ESPN where they went back to the host countries or of you know past Olympic games, and you saw sort of how corrupt how corrupted the IOC has become and how almost brutal the IOC is in the sense that they don't give a damn you know who's in the crossfire when it comes to some of this infrastructure building and these these cities that have to be built and these you know Olympic villages and these different arenas that will only be used 5 times and then basically sit there like, yeah. you remember that stadium in uh, Manaus, in Brazil, the one that was on the river, like uh, 500 was, miles like, away from everything? It just yeah. sits there. There's no team that uses it. There's no... It's an It's a million-dollar building that they built to be used three times and never use again.
1: it, it It's it's difficult to hear that. I mean, and not only the building, but, you know, I'm looking at an article now for Morocco, you know, leading up to a visit from FIFA. They're shooting stray dogs. So you've got in these countries where they're awarding the World Cup where it shouldn't be. They're shooting stray dogs. They're getting, you know, labor and horrible working conditions. And then even if after all of that, all that horrible stuff that's going on. And then, like you said, then the stadiums sit there. What are we doing this for? What is the point? Just so you can get a little bit of extra money? I assure you, the officials of FIFA have plenty of money. They don't need any more. Why do they? Why do they keep doing this? It's, it's nothing but a cash grab for people that already have millions of dollars in the bank account.
0: And it's sad because it's this traveling circus that comes to your country maybe once a lifetime, and it's it should be this moment of national pride. It should be this thing where the country comes together, they host this wonderful athletic tournament, and they're left better off. But they're not. And a country like the United States, Canada, and Mexico can host this tournament without going into massive debt. Yeah. And neglecting its people and hiring migrant workers. You just talking about the human rights violations in Qatar, and yes, they are human rights violations, and we have a podcast specifically about PSG's relationship to Qatar that Guillaume did about three, four months ago, which I still will claim is one of the best things we've ever done as a, as a news site. Yeah. And I feel like, in a weird way, we shouldn't be the one, you know, our and this goes to another topic, but our journalistic integrity should not be higher than Deadspin or ESPNFC or Fox Soccer. Yet you look at Fox. I don't see any of these reports happening on Fox Fox's airwaves. No, they. Won't I don't be able see, to see, see any of that. Reports. Like I don't see an investigative report from a Fox sports reporter about are there be are there human rights violations in Russia right now in regards to this World Cup. You just don't see that. And I think ESPN did, sorry to cut you off there, I think ESPN did a better job of that. They weren't great, but they still had the journalistic integrity to cover some of that. I feel like with Fox Soccer, I don't think they have the infrastructure or the journalistic wing to really sort of go into it, for obvious reasons.
1: Yeah, Fox is, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're broadcasting to the United States, correct? They have the broadcast rights for the World Cup? Yeah. Yeah, so they're not they going brought him to up, yeah. say anything about that. You know, Bob Lee at ESPN, he does the Outside the Line show. He he would be the person who would probably point this sort of stuff out, the atrocities going on and the human rights issues. And so, you know, you're right. There's Fox isn't going to call this out. They're not going to, you know, downplay and call these things out for a World Cup that they are broadcasting, and, and especially in Russia, where the United States did not qualify. So they're already going to be hurting for ratings. Um, and as, as uh, Eduardo Razo said, you know, most Mexican fans watch the games on Telemundo, so they're really hurting. So they're especially not going to turn people away from tuning in to the World Cup this year or after.
0: What I, and what I also think is really important to point out is that in the end, a lot of these stories sort of get forgotten. And they especially get forgotten once the ball kicks off. Yeah. And for three week, and for three weeks or for four weeks, the old, the world is focused on the football. They're not focused on the, they're focused on the, as cliche as this is, they're focused on the things that are happening inside the stadium. They're not necessarily focused on the things that are happening outside the stadium. And not to compare it to the 1936 Olympics because it's not to that degree of sort of depravity and propaganda but you get a very specific view of the country you're in for example you talk about the 2014 world cup and the 2016 olympics you're getting the beautiful views of the country you're not getting the you're getting the the nice parts of brazil you're not looking at the parts of brazil where people are living in shacks and there's sewage in the water and the water's polluted and people have to walk 5 miles to get halfway decent
1: water. You know, watching the coverage of the 2014 World Cup, you would think that Brazil is, you know, the beach of Rio and Christ the Redeemer, and that's pretty much it, but you don't see, you know, the slums of, you know, where Neymar came from, and you're right, you don't see that part, they just, for the average person, you think, oh, Brazil is wonderful, it's just the beach and this cool Jesus statue, you know, that's that's the way the coverage
0: is. And that's the problem, and and it's insidious in that way where It is propaganda, and FIFA uses these countries as propaganda tools to help show that they are advancing the game, and in in essence, that's what I think they believe their job is to do, which is to grow football. I don't think that's their job. I think their job should be to be the arbiter of the international game make sure that things are running smoothly, make sure that, you know, that there's no corruption within the FAs of various countries, make sure everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing, you know, run this tournament, Make a pick a good place for it, and get out of the way and let these players do what they do best. Instead, I think FIFA has become the ambassadors of the game. They feel like they it's their responsibility to export this game to all corners of the earth.
1: Which it's already there, though. That's the part that I don't get. Like, if you don't give Morocco the World Cup and they give it, say, Mexico, United States, they're going to still play soccer in Morocco. Yes. They, I don't understand. They just won't have a, a vacant stadium. Yes, and I village. agree with that.
0: And one of the things that, to give them some sort of credit, ever since Seth Blatter left... The one thing they've tried to do is they have opened up the, um, they've sort of deprivatized the, the selection process. <clears throat> so what happened was, in the, in the older days, when it was the Sepp Blatter era, you'd have these organizing bids who would go into private rooms and talk with like eight people. And then after like deliberations, the these eight people would come out with a ruling. And it was sketchy as all hell, and you didn't know who was paying who, and you didn't know who was voting what, and it was this sort of not transparent um, dealing that really sort of put the whole thing into question. They have officially sort of changed that, where now countries will vote for who they want to host the World Cup, so now it's become more of a campaign campaign. That one that the United States was winning pretty easily until sort of uh, unforeseen circumstances, and um, let's be realistic, the politics of the world now have sort of soured the rest of the world on the United States, in, at least in you know specific parts of the world have soured, and the once sort of strong bid that the United States had is now sort of in a precarious situation. I like the change. I think it's better than what they had. But is it still flawed to have this sort of voting system where you can where now you sort of have to publicly um, campaign for your for your country to get the World Cup?
1: Yeah. And I think in all of this, one thing and you mentioned sort of the political reality that we're all living in. One thing to keep in mind is safety. You know, we're living in a world where people are driving buses into crowds of people. And I think when you have the World Cup in countries that maybe don't have the law enforcement capability to maintain order and all of that, I think you don't want to see anything happen. And I think by having it in these countries that have to scramble to build stadiums, what's being overlooked? What sort of security measures aren't going to be in place that someone who wants to do something bad can take advantage of? And I think, you know, just for me, if I wanted to go to a World Cup, that's something that I am def- definitely would think about. How safe is it to go to this country? You know, are they going to have every everything covered? Are they going to be on the lookout for any kind of terrorism cells and things like that? And so I think that's a real issue that the that FIFA needs to, to consider when they are possibly awarding the World Cup to countries that have to scramble to build these huge stadiums.
0: Yeah, and I, and I completely agree with that. I think that's a really important... Um really important point, which is the security aspect of it all and how much money it costs to just secure a stadium. And they're going to have this issue in Russia. And Eastern Europe and Russia have a history of let's call it unsavory fan behavior. And that's probably the best way to put it. Hooliganism and racism is probably the worst way to put it. But I'm worried a little bit about the security in this World Cup because I think there are going to be fans in that stadium that shouldn't be there. I think there's going to be violence outside of these stadiums. And if you're a family, you know, you're here, you have your wife and your two kids, would you want to take, and I know you, you have a, a you have a family, right? would yeah. you want to take your family to this World Cup? I don't think I would.
1: I, I definitely wouldn't. And we saw uh, in France for the Euros. You know, you had some hooliganism, and France has basically been on high alert with all the issues that they've had going on, and they still had some of that going on, and they were able to control it to some point. But when you go to Russia, like you said, Eastern Europe, and the, it's a whole different world. And then when you start getting down to Qatar and the Middle East, and, you know, it's, it's something— I'm not saying anything's going to happen, and I pray that nothing does, but it's something that people attending these venues need to consider— when making arrangements. Yeah, you have to.
0: And I'm, and I'm curious also as to this World Cup being used as um, a nice little propaganda tool for Vladimir Putin. Oh, of course. And the just the, the 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 sense of rewarding a country like Russia who at this point right now are borderline um, totalitarianism. I would say they're pretty much totalitarianism, but it's... Vladimir Putin's a dictator. Like, no question, but- in, the, in the same way that in 1936, Adolf Hitler was a dictator. Um, there have been these countries that have these dictatorial non-democratic processes. You have this guy holding sham elections... And he's getting rewarded with this sort of three-week propaganda tournament where he can show the best parts of Russia and he can go to the games and he can have the fans cheer for him. There's just something unsavory about that.
1: And, And whether you believe that Donald Trump was working with Putin to rig the election, personally, I don't necessarily believe that. I think that Russia definitely played some sort of role in whether Donald Trump knew about it or not. That's to be debated But they, there's no doubt They were putting fake ads on Facebook They were They were Trying to Lure people to believing something That wasn't true Fake news if you will And so he did that And then Now you're rewarding him with a World Cup And like you said A three week propaganda Where he can say Look how great St. Petersburg is Look how great Moscow is Come here Come vacation It seems a little bit unsavory That you can Do all the things that he does In his own country Go and And sort of meddle in an election in another country, and then you get rewarded with the World Cup. It just doesn't sit well with me.
0: And it shouldn't sit well with anybody, and I think that this is where FIFA likes to have it both ways. It's where they can say, hey, we're growing the game, we're looking for people that deserve to have the World Cup, that want the World Cup, we want to build up these countries, we want to create a football culture, yet we don't want to be political. Yeah. And when you give the World Cup to a country like Russia, you're making a political statement. And the statement you're making is that we don't care about the human rights violations. We we don't care about the potential conflicts of interest. We care about getting the country getting this country the World Cup, making money. And then you talk about Qatar and it's the same idea, which is we don't care about the human rights violations. I mean, we have known about Qatar's human rights violations for years and years now. This is not something that's just come up. Ever since they started building for this World Cup, there have been those rumors, and those rumors have, for the most part, been at least mostly substantiated. Yet nothing happens.
1: I thought for sure that they were going to take the World Cup away from them when those reports came out years ago, and nothing ever happened.
0: They didn't? Nothing. And it's bizarre because... Yeah, you piss off Qatar, and, you know, when you're bought and paid for, it's kind of hard to take it back. But you can't, as a legitimate um, lover of democracy and the free world and freedom of expression and freedom of thought and freedom of choice, you know, having sexual freedoms, having political freedoms, you can't look at this... Organization, this FIFA organization, and go that they're champions of any of it. No. Like, they're just this vacuous money making machine, and that's sort of the drawback of it. And the question is, how do you fix that? How do you, how does it, how do you turn FIFA into something that you can kind of be proud of as a soccer fan, as opposed to something that you sort of just hold your nose about?
1: I mean, it's tough. I mean, like I said, to start the podcast, you need someone to organize this, someone to, you know, where are we going to put the World Cup and who gets in and that sort of thing. You need it. Maybe, and I haven't looked into this, maybe it's the case, but I think that these officials of the different confederations, they need to have term limits, almost like our... Government term limits, they have to be elected by the constituents. Maybe some sort of checks and balances on these people who are accepting bribes, maybe their bank accounts need to be public. I think a lot more um, just everything out front, checks and balances, term limits, that sort of thing. And maybe that would help uh, take away some of this awfulness that's been going on with FIFA. But I think at the end of the day, you do need a FIFA like organization, but more transparency is only going to be a good thing.
0: Yeah, and I would say the one thing you absolutely have to do is create a sort of, um, I I think there has to be sort of an independent organization that constantly monitors FIFA and UEFA, because we can have this conversation about UEFA too. Oh, 100%, yeah. Which is, and, and we'll get into this really briefly, but the idea that somehow PSG are even threatened with financial fair play violations for what is essentially an investment. In that, yeah, of course Neymar is not going to make you a profit in the first year. You're not going to make all your money back in the first year of your investment. That's what investments are. That's why they're called investments. They're not about making money immediately. So, so UEFA has this sort of financial fair play model, which essentially discourages teams from investing in their future because you can't lose a certain amount of money or you can't be a certain amount in the red over the course of a few years. It's not about competitive balance. That's not what UEFA's financial fair play is for. UEFA's financial fair play is to discourage mid-level teams from spending more than they have in the hope that either A, you keep those teams where they are or B, that you keep enough teams around where they don't fall into financial ruin. Whatever way you want to spin that, whether it's positive or negative, financial fair play should not be essentially there to stop PSG from trying to be competitive on the international stage as a team. And PSG just sort of snubbed their nose at it, and they took the risk. And I actually applaud them for taking the risk, because... They were never, PSG without doing those Neymar and Mbappe transfers were essentially stuck in place. So either you're stuck in place and you're going to consistently be a round of 16 group stage Champions League team, either you're going to be Borussia Dortmund or like Hoffenheim or Sevilla, or you're going to be a big boy. And it goes back to sort of the corruption of all of it, which is these organizations are there to keep the people that need to have the money with the money and to keep everyone else
1: out. Yeah, they have their favorite teams, and PSG are the new boys on the the block, if you will. And you're right, they're playing the long game with Neymar and Mbappe. You're not going to make your money back in the first year. You have to sell enough jerseys, and you make it further in the Champions League and higher TV rights. And so all of these things take time and PSG like you said were very clever in looking at the rules and figuring out a way to get around that they had Neymar pay his own buyout that should not be up for consideration when financial fair play you know lawyers or whoever look at the books that shouldn't come into play Neymar paid now where he got the money i don't i don't really care he paid his own that that's not on PSG and mbappe was alone so i think PSG were very clever to get around the rules that were set up to keep them below all of these other top tier teams and so I applaud them for what they did I think it's fantastic I love that and if they are sanctioned with financial fair play I, I I'm gonna rage I'm gonna I'm gonna write a post every day about how it's just nonsense and, and UEFA should be ashamed of themselves
0: yeah it's a it's a it's a it's about the idea that Barcelona and Real Madrid can get away with anything they want. They can get away with tampering. They can get away with unsettling players. They can get away with making pre-agreements. They commit violations daily. And PSG,
1: I think that's a good example. yeah. Go ahead. No, I was going to say Antoine Griezmann. He's a yeah. good example of what's happening
0: now. I would agree, and I, I think I think they should be blocked from signing him. I absolutely think if there was a living, breathing UEFA th- that took the best interest of all of the um, all of its organizing teams, all of its teams that it represents, if it had all of their best interests in mind, Barcelona would be banned from signing that player. And that should be the rule. The rule should be if you as a club are essentially talking about a player as if he's already there, like Luis Suarez did, and like their... Um, like one of their presidents did, or one of their one of their board members did, you should be banned from signing that player. Again, you notice when PSG signed Neymar, they said nothing, nothing, yeah. not a fucking word, not a word. They did it absolutely the perfect way you can do it, and they're the ones being looked at, and not Barcelona. It just it blows my mind. But let's move on. Um, yeah. One of the other issues, and you brought this up a little while ago. Is that the World Cup is not really a competition to say who the best team in the world is. And here's why. The way FIFA does the World Cup, the way they pick the teams, they pick them by confederation. Okay. So UEFA gets a certain amount. CONCACAF gets a certain amount. CONMEBOL gets a certain amount. The AFC gets a certain amount. And the um, CAF gets a certain amount. And those teams that make it are not necessarily in the—they're not necessarily one of the top 32 teams. So if you go down the list and you look at the lowest um, team, the lowest ranked team that made the World Cup this year, Saudi Arabia comes in at 70. And this is by FIFA's own ranking, so take them for what they're worth. Russia is 66. South Korea is 61, Japan is 60, Panama is 55. Um, Let's let's go further up. You have uh, Nigeria at 47, you have Egypt at 46, you have Morocco at 42, you have Australia at 40. So on and so on. Iran's 36. And I doubt that Iran is the 36th best team in the the world. But these are UEFA's rankings. So teams that were left out via their qualification, and I'm not having pity parties for these teams, but just to make a point that Chile is ranked 9th in the world. They will not be going to the World Cup. Um, The Netherlands is ranked 19th in the world. They will also not be going to the World Cup. Italy is ranked 20th. Wales is ranked 21st. The USA is the 24th best team in the world. They will not be going to the World Cup. Austria is 26th. Northern Ireland, 27th. Uh, Ukraine is 30th. Ireland is 31st. Romania is 32nd. These are teams that are ranked higher than certain teams that are making the World Cup, and they're not in it. Explain why this is a problem, because I think it's a problem. If the if the goal is to have a tournament that pits the best teams in the world against each other, then this is not the right way to do this. Am I wrong? Yeah, the,
1: no, the confederations, is, that's what the issue is. Some confederations, it's easier to qualify than others. And, and you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, just look at the, those teams that didn't make it. Chile. Netherlands, Italy, U.S., Turkey, Greece, Wales. All of these teams have world-class players that we're all familiar with. Um, at PSG, Marco Parati, for example. He's not going to be there with Italy. And so when you have these confederations, you're you're not getting the best teams in the world. For example, you mentioned Russia and Saudi Arabia as being two of the lowest-seeded uh, teams at this year's World Cup. Guess what? Those two teams, teams—that—that that, they're kicking off the 2018 World Cup. Who's watching that? Who was tuning in for Russia versus Saudi Arabia? Nobody. Nobody wants to see that. I'm sorry to Russia and Saudi Arabia fans if, if you if you listen to this podcast. I apologize, but on the big stage at the World Cup, Saudi Arabia should not be in while a team like the Netherlands and Italy and USA and Ivory Coast, while those teams are not in. Um, some players that you're not going to see. I mentioned Varadi, Alexis Sanchez, Arturo Vidal. Justin Clivert, which is a young star who some of the uh, PSG fans may know is Dad. Um, uh, Wynn at Liverpool, also at Liverpool, Van Dyke. I mean, these are teams that are not going to be there. And as a USA, uh, fan, Kristen Pulisic at, uh, Borussia Dortmund. He's not going to be there to get his sort of debut on the international stage. And so, I think that's the problem. At the end of the day, this is a, the world cup is not only a competition, but it's a TV show and it's something, it's the biggest TV show that anyone tunes in. And I'm sorry when you're kicking off with Russia and Saudi Arabia, that should be a red flag to say, Hey, we, maybe this isn't the greatest way to pick the teams. Um, and I have a way to sort of remedy that, but, um, any thoughts that you had about it?
0: Yeah. And I want to hear what you have to say. Cause I, I, I think it's an interesting idea. i I I feel like, just and I don't know if I'm going to go into what you're saying, my idea would be that you have the two top teams. Actually, let's say there's five confederations. There's the CAF, there's the AFC, there's UEFA. Actually, there's six. Yeah. So let's do, I would say, top four. Four teams qualify from each confederation, and then the rest of the teams are picked based on their rank. That would be what I would do, but I don't know how you do it.
1: So here's what I think. FIFA, they're not going to make any broad-sweeping changes. Let's keep the World Cup as it is, as flawed as it is, with the way they rank the teams and who gets in. Let's just keep that. My idea, I'm a big fan of college sports here in the United States, and I think that FIFA should look at having an NIT-type competition, for those who don't know, that's like um, college basketball where you have the March Madness tournament. The NIT tournament is an invitational where all the teams who didn't make the uh, March Madness tournament, they get to play in this sort of smaller competition that, goes, that runs concurrently with March Madness. And so I think that FIFA should have sort of a second World Cup, um, kind of like with the Champions League. You know, you have the Champions League and then the Europa League, which is full of all the teams who didn't really make it to the Champions League or lost in the group stage. So why not have a World Cup and, let's say, something called an International Cup? Um, and the bonuses of this type of competition are multiple. So first, it's more international soccer, and who doesn't want that? Um, number two, television networks would love to have more uh, soccer to show for advertising purposes, and that's more money for FIFA, and as we've already discussed, FIFA loves money. So I don't see why they wouldn't want that. Right now, you have 32 teams that make the World Cup. And you could do half of that for the International Cups, maybe 16 teams. And so if this year, if you did have an International Cup, you would have Chile, Netherlands, Italy, United States, Turkey, Greece, Wales, Ireland, Scotland, Honduras, Bosnia, Herzegovina, the Czech Republic. These are all teams that could be in this International Cup. And who wouldn't watch that? You know, if if the World Cup is kicking off with Saudi Arabia and Russia... You could switch over and maybe maybe you know Wales and Italy are kicking off. I would much rather watch you know Gareth Bale and and Marco Verratti face off than I can't I literally can't name one player on Saudi Arabia. So you know I also think that the international cup, if it were to exist, would be a great place to try out new innovations for the game. So you have the 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 VAR. Maybe if this existed in previous years, you could have tested some of this new technology out in this lesser competition get it perfected, find out it's good points, it's bad points, and then you can bring it into the World Cup. So I think it's a great breeding ground for testing out new technology. And, you know, obviously the countries that were in the International Cup, if it existed, they wouldn't be playing for the World Cup. So why would they really try that hard? And what about this for motivation? I'm curious what you think about this. What about the winner of this International Cup automatically qualifies for the next World Cup and you get rid of the rule that says the host nation automatically qualifies for the World Cup. It's a stupid rule to begin with, and just because you bribed some guys in a suit for you know to host it, why should your country like Qatar? They're a terrible soccer team, and they're going to qualify automatically. I just think that's that's garbage. Get rid of it. Have this second International Cup. The winner of that is the one that automatically qualifies for the next World Cup. What do you think about that?
0: I, again, I like a lot of this idea. I will say that Part of the incentive to host the World Cup is to have your team get three games on home soil in a big competition where you can, you can sell out the stadium and you can make some of your revenue back. So I think that if you took away that role, I think it would uh, unincentivize, if that's even a word, some of those lower nations from maybe even trying to bid. Now, You can ask whether you want now. You can ask whether you want those teams even bidding or having the World Cup in the first place.
1: Exactly, exactly. But
0: I do believe that there should be that incentive to hosting it. But everything else, I like. I really like the. I think that the winner of that should automatically qualify for the World Cup, in the same way that the winner of the Europa League automatically qualifies for the Champions League. It just makes sense. It gives you an incentive. Now, the thing I would say though is, you don't want. This tournament on at the same time that the World Cup is. So what you would do is, let's say you had, let's say this year the World Cup's in Russia. Right. So instead of having the instead of having the games concurrently played, you have them concurrently played but not at the same time in the same um, time, time zone. Slot. So what you'd have is, let's say the Let's say the, um, the bids for the World Cup are United States and Morocco. And let's say Morocco wins. Then the United States gets the other tournament. Exactly what I was thinking, yep. So even if you finish second in that, in that process, you still get something. And, for example, you would get the... So in the United States, you'd be able to watch the Morocco games first, the World Cup first, and then you'd get to watch these other games as sort of a secondary deal... Where they're on at a different time and they're, you know. So you wouldn't have them on at the same time, but you'd have them, um, you'd have them at least like one after the other. So instead of having three World Cup, three games on a day, you'd have like five. I would do it as the top eight teams that don't make it. I'd put them in two pots. I would, me, I'd keep it very simple. So that you don't water it down and have what you had in the European Championships in 2016, where you had some really not very good um, teams make it. So exactly. if your top eight would be, your top eight would be Chile, um, the Netherlands, Italy, Wales, USA, Austria, Northern Ireland, and Senegal. That's pretty good. I think we could yep. live with that. And then you'd have, that you throw them in a pot, You'd have two groups. The um, the first the two the two top teams in each group they go to the semis and you do a semifinal and a semifinals and a final and it's really simple you don't play too many games because you don't want to have nine thousand games on during the span of a month you want to have some sort of exclusivity and some sort of um, you don't want to oversaturate it with too many games. But if you keep right. it with eight, I think you could really um, I think you could really do something with that.
1: Absolutely. And I, I, I really like that incentive of qualifying for the next World Cup, the winner, because not only does that make the players play harder, but also as a fan, I don't wanna watch and we'll, I have a little note about this for later. Like the third place game in the World Cup, I have no interest in that. The players don't care; they're not playing for anything. Why do I care about third place? However, if I'm watching eight teams battle it out, you know, for a for a spot in next in the next World Cup, I'm watching that. Over Russia, Saudi Arabia, I'm a hundred percent watching these teams that didn't qualify battle it out to qualify for the next World Cup. That would be fantastic television.
0: I agree, and. Let's ask if so we have those eight teams, who wins? Who would win this year? If we'd had that if we had that tournament, who would be the final two teams and who would win?
1: I don't think it would be the United States. Um, I think you'd have to like Italy just with that defense. I think that they would do really well. And I don't know if Netherlands, I know they were in the final in the World Cup not too long ago, but I, I would say maybe Chile. I really like a lot of their young players. I, I would say maybe Chile versus Italy for the final there.
0: And who? And you think Italy would win?
1: I think Italy would win. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I I think I think this would work. I think it. It and I think with the ever um ever expanding presence of TV rights, I think with the amount of money that's in the game and the amount of money that can be played, I don't think this is a far fetched idea. I think there'll be some point where the game, where they'll just go for the money grab. They a, the, it's, a, it's an easy, it's an easy billion dollars to make. So why not go do it?
1: FIFA loves money. They have the Champions League, and they have the Europa League. So yeah. why, why not, not? Just do the same thing? Yeah, why not just do the same thing with the World Cup? Just have a secondary. I've already given you the name, the International Cup. Mm-hmm. You know, get a sponsor, the Gillette International Cup, I, whatever it is, make. You can make so much money off of this. It makes perfect sense. It's more soccer to watch. You're getting these teams that are just, think about it, these players. Marco what what is he doing this summer? He's just going to be on a boat in the Mediterranean somewhere. Now, let's get him, you know, in the Azuri blue, and let's watch him and, and they're in the summer. I mean, obviously it's a risk. He may get injured, but hopefully that doesn't happen, and I want to watch these teams that are just, didn't qualify and they're just sitting at home anyway.
0: Well, yeah, and and actually during the world, at least before the World Cup and a little bit after, some of these teams are playing international friendlies anyway. So that's true.
1: That's you a might, good point. You might Why as well. You might as yeah. well.
0: Um. Any other notes you have? Because I'm sure you have some more ideas to throw our way just as we uh, as we go on through this.
1: Yeah. Um, number, the first thing is I don't like that the group stage is kind of predetermined in the sense that the winner of Group C plays the runner-up of Group D, for example, because then you get in a case where, like, um, Brazil versus Chile in the round of 16 in 2014, and then you had France versus Germany in the quarterfinals in 2014, you know, you're getting some of these big teams – facing off a little bit earlier than you would like. So maybe, kind of like the Champions League, maybe after the group stage, you rank them 1 through 16, and then one plays 16, and two plays 15. And, and that way, you save these big teams when the pressure is really on and the chance to really advance into the latter stages really counts. So yeah. I think that would be good. I also mentioned that the third-place match needs to just get rid of it. The fans don't care. I don't care. Either give them incentive to play hard, like money, or just get rid of it entirely and base third place on who accumulated the most points. That's probably not going to happen because it's another game to televise, and they want that, so this is kind of wishful thinking. But I just something to make that third place match a little bit better, I think they need to look out. And then lastly, this is sort of a radical idea. We kind of have it here in the United States with the National Hockey League, but I think some sort of skills competition leading up to the World Cup would be so much fun. So, like, who has the hardest penalty kick? Who can run the fastest? Who has the best dribbling skills? Maybe a keeper competition. I think seeing these guys represent their country in a competition like this, where they're all joking around and laughing, and sort of build up hype before the tournament would be ratings gold. Like, I would love to see, you know, is, is Theo Walcott, is he really the fastest player? I know a lot of people, you know, back in his heyday said he was, but... You know, let's get these players out and let's see who has the hardest shot. Like, how hard does Cristiano Ronaldo kick a ball? You know, have him versus Messi in a penalty kick competition? I think it'd be brilliant.
0: Yeah, two things about that. Um, the first one, I think that I like this better than what they do in UEFA, which is they just throw all the, the names in a pot and you just have a random draw. I like yeah. the idea of a bracket a little better, although I think they could they could fix that up a little more. Yeah. Uh, the other, and then the second one, I just want you to imagine, um, them doing a skills competition the week before the World Cup. And let's say, um, let's say Cristiano Ronaldo tears his hamstring in the, uh, in the free kick competition. Yeah. Could you imagine that? Well, it's
1: already happening. I mean, Danny Alves went down with a knee injury. Yeah, but
0: I, that, at least, at least that's during a game. Like, yeah. it, could you imagine in Portugal, like he gets hurt doing a free kick competition and a skills in a skills deal? I could
1: see that. So maybe it's like LeBron James who doesn't do the dunk contest. Yeah, maybe like you get the, the you get
0: the you get the reserve players to do this. You don't get like the you don't get you don't get LeBron in the dunk competition because he doesn't want to get hurt. And yeah. what also happens with that is in America, which is they don't want to lose to the they they don't want to lose the skill competitions. Like, LeBron doesn't want to lose a three-point competition. Like, what good does that do his brand?
1: That's true. So maybe you don't get Ronaldo and Messi, but still you would get... You get some some decent players. Like, I want to see how fast Mbappe is. You know, let's get him out there. And I just think it would be so much fun to see these, these players out there. And maybe, like you said, you don't get the stars, but it's worth a try, and it would definitely build... I would watch. I mean, who wouldn't watch that? Oh,
0: yeah. Absolutely, you'd watch it. Now, the other one I have which is i do not like the penalty shootout. Ooh, good one. Good one. I feel like if we're spending billions of dollars on this thing and we're throwing our heart and souls out here, we're really deciding this on penalty kicks. Like you notice in the in the NHL, the, they never in the playoffs they go to they go to first goal wins. Now I don't think they should do first goal wins what I think they should do is after the group stage and you get into the knockout rounds it should be 15 minutes at full strength for both teams so 15 minutes so let's say the first 15 minutes are 11 on 11 then the next 15 minutes are 10 on 10 then the next and then everything after that is, so, uh, let me try to phrase that a little differently. You play it pretty much normally for the first 30 minutes of extra time, except in the last 15 minutes you take off a guy. So, it's still, you play the full 30 minutes no matter what. Then after that, every 5 minutes you remove a player until, you remove a player until someone scores. That's what I would do because you don't want the I game to, you don't want the game to go forever and yeah i'm sure it's it, it's it, it's still gimmicky but it's at least you have like Messi and Ronaldo and Neymar on the field in a five on a six on six you know the the game gets more open there's more dribbling it gets faster the defending gets more frantic it would be probably some of the more exciting football you would ever see i don't think it'll ever be done but I think it's better than penalty kicks.
1: I agree. Get rid of penalty kicks, and why not start with what the Champions League is doing, where they're allowing a fourth substitute uh, in extra time. So why not just start with that? And I and why not have it so maybe you do penalty kicks in the in the group stage. Maybe you do penalty kicks, or maybe take out penalty kicks um, later in the knockout stage. So maybe from the quarterfinals on no more penalty kicks, you get a fourth substitute. And I'm sorry, guys, you just got to play till someone has a winner. If you're tired, sit down on the pitch and let the other team score and win. Yeah. You know, I, I agree with you. Get rid of penalties, but maybe a little bit later, allow a fourth substitute. They're, they're looking at it with the Champions League, so why not bring that? And again, this is something, if you did have that Internationals Cup, this is something that you could try out to see how it works in that lesser cup and then bring it into the World Cup.
0: Yeah, because... The issue just, it just become, and it's not as big of an issue because when you get later into the knockout stages, the teams are good anyway. Right. So it's not like it's Saudi Arabia and Russia playing, you know, in the 150th minute and they can barely stand up and every ball is a long ball to the goalie. Like, it would be legitimately good football, I think.
1: I agree with you, And and especially if you get that fourth substitute, you know. That managers have to plan accordingly, like maybe save that super sub on the bench just in case extra time. And then you bring on a speedster and, uh, so like maybe France, maybe they leave Mbappe, not, maybe not him, but you know, someone that can come in and really change the game in overtime. That's a new strategy, a new wrinkle for managers to work out tactically.
0: Yes. So anything else you have?
1: That's it. And yeah. I would just like to say, FIFA, if, if you're considering any of these things, um, I can send you my information. I know you got a lot of money. You know, Mark and I, we would definitely love to have a consultant fee. How do you feel about that?
0: Um, I'll take the money. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Ed, um, yes. tell, us what, um, tell us how people can interact with you. Tell us... Um, what you are um, working on for the site, possibly any teasers, and also talk about how you're spending this World Cup and how you're watching it and all that and all that good stuff before we uh, ride off into the sunset.
1: Absolutely, yeah. You can uh, reach us on Twitter at PSG Talk. Um, I'm the one that usually runs that account, unless I'm tied up and then Mark takes over, but we're also on Facebook. I think we're up to like 500 likes, something like that, so that's surprising. Every day I'm surprised at how popular the site is. Um, so we, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter. Um, I try to up, update the Instagram when I can. Um, we're on email. If you want to reach out that way, we're always looking for new writers. If you have something interesting to say, um, always reach out to us. Um, and then as far as the site goes, we have a Lo Celso who really seems to have picked it up here the second half of the season and Really seems like he's going to be a bright star for PSG in the, in the years to come. And John Olangi, who you've had on the podcast before, he's working on a piece. Um, should actually be here uh, later this afternoon. So we'll have a piece from him going up. And then how I'm going to be spending the World Cup. Yeah, I'm just going to be here watching it. I'm not traveling to Russia. I'll, I'll be watching. I've ordered um, the training kit for France and the blue home kit. So I am all kitted out. I'm going to be wearing it to work around town. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited to cheer on France this year since the United States didn't make it. And it should be a good, a fun tournament, even though they don't have our suggestions yet. It should be a lot of fun to watch. Um, yeah, so I'm just that's how I'm going to be spending it. How about you? Um,
0: yeah, I'm going to be working for that first week, but once that's done, I'm pretty much taking a few di- I'm taking a few weeks off at the end, so I'll be, I'll be invested. I'll be watching. I'll be recording shows. Um, I'll probably be recording shows with uh, the aforementioned John Olangi, who since this podcast won't be coming out for another three, four weeks, yep. that article you talked about with Chelsea will be out there already, so if you haven't read it, yep. you, can, you can read it. It'll be three weeks old at that point, but John's very good. I enjoy him a lot, and he is coming on in two episodes to preview the World Cup with me. We're going to go pretty long on that show. We're going to talk about everything we can think of. Yeah. So look out for that. Uh um, yeah speaking of your
1: podcast, I, I forgot to mention, I mean, we've got, you know, the state of African football with uh Daniel Pragbaha, we've got PSG in the World Cup, we've got VAR in officiating, what went wrong with Germany. We have uh Matt at uh, his his Twitter is PSG Tourist. Um, He's talking about England. I mean, we've just got a plethora of amazing podcasts coming up leading up to the World Cup.
0: Yes, and some of them you've heard already. Some of them you will soon hear. Um, Ed, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. It's always good to talk to you.
1: Absolutely. This has been great. Thank you so much.
0: So for PSG Talk founder Ed, this has been your World Cup podcast host, Mark Damon, saying au revoir for now. Thank you for listening to the World Cup Project. Our next episode will feature PSG Talking contributor Matt Gooding in our discussion about the Three Lions, England's national team. The theme for the World Cup Project is provided by the Dutch supergroup Orgel Vretten, whose fantastic music you can listen to on iTunes and Spotify. This show is brought to you by PSG Talk, the number one news and opinion site for all things Paris Saint-Germain in English. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for more information on upcoming World Cup Project episodes. And as always, this is your host, Mark Damon, saying once again, au revoir for now.